Well, you know, in, in many competition, there's provision that's made for um, challenging the contested play, right? That's when there's a question over whether the ref got the call right or not, right? So, so in football, um, there's two opportunities for each team to throw out the challenge flag, um, and, uh, and, and it, that's the red flag. Last, last week it was the yellow flag, right? And this week is the red flag. So just so you know, the baseball analogies are over because the Yankees are doing horrible. So usually I don't start with the football analogies these early, but there's nothing to talk about when it comes to the MLB. But um, this red challenge flag, uh, it puts the play under review. And that means they go to the network or the officials and they review it and and while that's happening right the the plate doesn't continue so while it's being reviewed the broadcasters they are guaranteed to show slow-mo replays 18 different times from seven different angles while a retired official weighs in well, here's the way I see it, fellows, you know, and, and this, there's so many things that go into it. Uh, did the receiver main control uh, of the football? Did both feet touch the field of play before he went out of bounds? There's, there's a whole lot to review, and the idea is that getting the right call really matters. So I'm actually a, a fan of what tennis has done. I don't know if any of you watch tennis, but there's no longer any appeal to the judge for whether a tennis ball is inbounds or out of bounds because now it's fully automated. The computers do all the work. They make the call so, you know, John McEnroe would have a hard time today because you just can't argue about it. But what they show is they show, like, the replay. Um, And when there's a close call, they show the replay so you can see exactly where the ball landed. And, you know, I I would love to see that happen in baseball when it comes to uh, balls and strikes although it would make an even, you know, a, a boring game even more boring um, when you take out the drama of, uh, you know, the meltdowns that people have over whether the ball was in, in the strike zone or out of it. Long story short, getting the right call matters. And that applies not only to sporting events, uh, but the issues of life and death and eternity yeah, we've been making our way through the book of 1 Corinthians for some time. Um, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in this city in the Roman Empire called Corinth, and he wrote it to help them grow up in their walk with the Lord. And so we call the series Growing Pains, and, and we are now up to chapter 15, which is the second to last chapter, so um, if you're paying attention, we're getting close to the end. I think we started in March, and we're getting close to the end, but in this chapter, Paul is confirming a call that the Corinthians had thrown out the f- challenge flag on. It had to do with the Christian claim about life after death, or what we call the, the resurrection, Um, specifically about whether the grave is the end of our physical existence or not. Um, That's what they were contesting. See, the way the Corinthians saw it, once a person dies, uh, that's the end of their bodily existence. On the other side of the grave, uh, yeah, sure, you go on existing, but you exist in some kind of abstract kind of you know, ghost-like, free-flowing, disembodied existence. And, and that was in contrast to what the, what, what the Christian claim was, which is that the grave 
is not the end of the line for our bodily existence. It's more of a temporary timeout. The Christian claim is that the day is coming when Jesus returns, when the graves will be opened up, and God's redeemed people are destined to be reunited with our physical bodies, but in an updated form, and will live out eternity in a glorified, redeemed, and fully physical existence. Right? So that's like, okay, do I have to update the image in my head of what heaven is about? Heaven is not about floating in clouds. Uh, eternity is not just that. It's actually physical. There's, you can touch it. There's, there's, there's senses involved. And, and so this was, this was the claim that the Corinthians said, I'm throwing out the challenge flag on that. Come on, are you sure about that one, Paul? Because that sure sounds far-fetched. Let's, let's review that claim. And, and maybe you feel that way as well. Maybe you're with the Corinthians. You have your own doubts about a claim that outrageous. And if that is the case, um, welcome to the club, right? You're, you're not alone. Uh, I'm glad you're here and you are in the right place uh, because this is the, this is the chance to, to review that whole claim. Uh, Paul is actually going to confirm two calls uh, the first is about the reality of Jesus' resurrection, and then after he does that, he's going to confirm the, the hope of our future resurrection. Uh, but he lays it all out. Here is what it is. Here's why it matters, and here's what it means for the way we live out our lives right here and now. And so this morning, uh, we're going to get through the first call this morning, the one about Jesus' resurrection. So if you, have, if you have your Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to start... Uh, in verse 1, and it starts by taking us back to where, where the whole thing started, uh, back to the basics of the gospel message. And, and the idea is if you want to understand how it ends, then go back to remember how it started. And so here's what it says in verse 1 and 2. He says, I will now remind you, uh, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, Unless you believed in vain. Um, so, so, so Paul is taking the Corinthians kind of on a stroll down memory lane. Right? He reminds them of the time when, when their journey with Jesus first started. And it's a reminder for all of us that faith needs a starting point. Right? There, there is a point in time when each of us, we weren't walking with the Lord. And then there comes this point at which we... We jumped on, and our walk with him begins. Now, some of you here, you may be able to point out to the particular moment, right? You know where you were. You know what time it was. You know who you were with when you prayed that prayer of faith, and it all started. Um, Others, you may not be able to be that specific, but you know you made a conscious decision. You solidified their faith in Christ and then you, you, solid, you confirm that by being baptized. There's some of you maybe who just not have that kind of conscious starting point yet. You're not quite sure. Did I start? Haven't I started? And my hope and my prayer this morning is that you will have a starting point before you leave here today. And so this passage lays out how that happens. If it, it, it happens after someone shares this message, this gospel message, and someone else responds to that message. So for the Corinthians, that person was Paul, and he's reminding them of when he shared the gospel 
with them. The, the message is front and center. The message is right in the middle of what it is that initiates the life of faith, getting on board. Gospel is the word that we use to describe that message. And gospel, if you translate it, it literally means good news. There's some good news. It's the, it's the good news about what God has done in and through his son, Jesus Christ. And so how it happened for them is one day Paul shows up in the city of Corinth and he starts sharing the gospel with basically anyone who would listen to him. And a few of them that did listen, they, they heard it and they responded to it. It says they received the gospel message. It's that that became their point of entry. That's, that was the moment when it all started. And it still is today. This is how it starts. So on the one end, there's a, there's a human vessel um, who shares the gospel message. And then there's someone who hears that message and responds to that. The response we see here that Paul describes is that he says, you received it. It's kind of like in football when a, when a pass gets completed, when there's a reception made, right? The message, it lands home to the heart. You grab hold of it in a personal way. Paul says, uh, the Corinthians, he says, you're standing in the gospel. You're being saved by the gospel. You're holding fast to the gospel. And I think what it's getting at is that this message they responded to, it, it changed their lives, right? It's, it's something they, they cherished. It's almost as if like the whole orbit of the way they lived recalibrated around this message, the gospel. And so that's why the, the message matters. Um, it matters so much that Paul here is expressing concern about his Corinthian friends, these people he dearly loves, that they might actually have believed in vain. That's his concern. And it's over this pushback about the resurrection, that this is setting off some red flags to him because what they're pushing back on, it's, it's not some kind of secondary issue that doesn't really matter either way. Let's not get all bent out of shape about that. Come on, let's just focus on the important things. No, this is, this is the important thing. This is a top priority. The, the resurrection, he's making the point, this is a gospel issue. So the way it is is that if you cut out the resurrection, the message you're left with is it's just no longer good news. It can no longer be described as the gospel, the essential core message of Christianity. And so that gets to the second point. Um, the second point of review, which is what actually is the gospel message, if it's that important, if it's that essential, if it's right there at the center of what connects someone to Christ and gets things going, what, what actually is it? And that's what we're going to read about next. But before we do, I just want to ask you, invite you to think about that yourself. What's your answer to that? What, what is the gospel? What does it mean to share the gospel with someone? Is it, uh, is it just simply shorthand for having a spiritual conversation? Is that the gospel? Does the gospel, does it mean telling someone God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Is that the gospel? What is the gospel? Let's read and see how Paul articulates this good news. He says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins 
in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. We'll, we'll, we'll stop right there and kind of try to answer that question we asked before, what is the gospel? A couple of initial observations first is that the gospel is a message that is addressed to us, but it's not really about us. It's about Jesus and what he has done for us. Uh, first point of cal- clarification. The second is that the good news is not, what we didn't hear is not, you know what, just try your hardest Be the best version of you you can be, and that's enough, right? Or if your good outweighs your bad, right, and the scales are tipped in the good favor, then you're all right. Neither of those are, they're really not good news, because how do you know? The gospel's not that message. The gospel is the message of Jesus. The good news is that there is a Savior who came and defeated death. That's the gospel. He did what no one else in the history of this planet has ever done. And so Paul breaks it down into three parts. He says each one of these are of first importance. Can't throw out any of them. He says Jesus, number one, died for our sins. Number two, he was buried. And number three, he was raised on the third day. Walk through each of them quickly. The first is that Jesus died for us. The reason Jesus died was because we have a sin issue in our lives that we are just unable to resolve on our own. That's the reality. Sin, when we talk about sin, what exactly is that? It's doing our own thing. It's, it's going our own way instead of God's way. It's, it's wanting to do my will instead of God's will. The God who created us, who designed us to live in relationship with him. It's just putting up the hand and saying, no, thank you, God. Talk to you later. And the problem is that this God who created us is is a holy God. He's infinitely righteous. That's part of what holiness means, and that means he is a God of justice. And that means he cannot, by his nature, turn a blind eye to wrongdoing, to rebellion. And uh, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That sin and death are inevitable realities that both come tied together. They've been tied together since that fall, the first fall in the, in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and turned their backs on God, that's, that, that's when sin entered the world and it's when death entered physical death, and spiritual death. Because of sin, we are all born physically alive, but spiritually dead. That's why Jesus explained that even this this religious leader, this Pharisee Nicodemus, even he had to be born again. And he's like the most upright, morally superior guy who followed all the rules, who did all the right things. He still has this need in his life that he's unable to resolve on his own. You must be born again. You must be born from above. This need to be made alive to God is real for you, and you can't make yourself born. 
So that's the reason why Jesus came, because God is not only a God of infinite justice and righteousness, he's also a God of infinite love. And so instead of giving us the justice we deserved, he chose to give us his one and only son instead. Jesus came and he lived the perfect sinless life that I've never lived, that you've never lived, that no one else has ever lived. And then he went to the cross and bore the punishment, our punishment, on himself. Jesus died for our sins. He didn't die for his own sins. He suffered for our sins. And he got what we deserved and he paid the price in full. And that sacrifice cost him everything. The second point is that Jesus didn't just suffer. He, he died. His, his life expired. Paul makes the point he's dead and buried. And then three days later, the lifeless body of the Lord Jesus Christ was raised back to life. That means his heart started beating again and his, his chest muscles expanded again and his lungs breathed in oxygen, his eyelids opened and his senses awakened. And this moment in history came when Jesus got up and walked out of the grave. And it's a place he's never gone back to or never will ever go back to again. You see, that's, that's the gospel. That's the essence of what ignites the life of faith. The good news is that Jesus did it, that he paid the price in full for sin, and so death no longer has the final say. It's been, defeat, it's been defeated. His resurrection means that life has conquered death. But the reality is that anyone can say anything, right? Jesus conquered death. But how can I know? How can we be sure that this claim is actually true? That's, uh, that's the challenge, and, and we're going to keep on reading for that to see that uh, there's a confirmation of this call. He says this. Um, he says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which means they've, they're dead. Um, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. See, this, this message of the resurrection that's under contest for the Corinthians, it's, we've seen it's at the very heart of the gospel message. And it's, a, it's an audacious claim. It makes this unprecedented claim that Jesus rose back to life. And, and that's the challenge because in our experience, in our day-to-day life, we know this trend is that once people die, they, they stay dead, right? It's a well-established pattern. And so the natural response when we hear that claim, Jesus rose from the dead, he rose back to life, is not to say, oh yeah, of course he did. Right? That's, that's the whole reason why the, Christ, the, the Corinthians here, they're struggling with it. It's why we struggle with it as well. And, and, and they're like, 
are you sure? Don't you mean maybe Jesus rose back to life like figuratively, like in a spiritual sense? Because if you're, if you're talking literal, if you're talking physical, well, that's a hard one to follow, to, to swallow. And, and what's worth noting is, is what Paul doesn't say to that challenge. Here's how he doesn't respond. He doesn't say, you know, guys, I know what I'm saying sounds outrageous, but here's what you got to do. Stop thinking about it. Just turn your brains off and just believe. We never see anything like that from Paul, from anywhere in the Bible. That would constitute what I would call blind faith. Now, make no mistake, Christianity, it requires faith, but it doesn't call us to blind faith. It calls us to a reasonable faith, to an informed faith, and that's what Paul is getting at. And so instead of, instead of just saying, stop thinking and just believe, he lays out these three compelling reasons to believe. Now, when you've looked through these reasons, is that going to give you 100% confidence that you can know for sure? Probably not. If you want to find a reason to doubt, you can always find one, but there's also good reason to believe. And these reasons that he lays out for them, they didn't just apply to then and there, they apply to here and now uh, to us as well. And so the first one uh, is the testimony of the scriptures. I don't know if you picked it up, but he points out uh, twice he mentions that this whole thing played out in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus died in accordance to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. The scriptures that he's referring to is That would be the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the ones that were written centuries before Jesus was ever born. And if you ever read them, it doesn't take long to understand and recognize that the defeat of death, that's not some kind of new storyline that just got inserted when Jesus went to the cross. That is the storyline of scripture. It has been the storyline from the start, and it's everywhere in the Old Testament right there at the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman, God said that. Through the seed of the woman, the head of the serpent would be crushed. Something was going to happen that was going to turn everything that went wrong and make it right again. And we read about the suffering servant in the Psalms who, who would give his life, on whom the sins would be laid uh, sacrifice. It's woven into the very fabric of Old Testament worship. You can't read through the book of Leviticus without seeing it. So many books. It's why when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, hey, behold the Lamb of God. Everybody knew what that meant. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They knew what that meant because they they would bring their lambs to the altar anytime they went to worship. They'd sacrifice a, a lamb at the altar, see his blood shed so that they could approach God and get near to God. So he's saying is Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's destined to die and through his death defeat the power of sin and death. Psalm 16.10 says, You will not abandon my soul to hell. You will not let your holy one see corruption. In the grave, the promise of resurrection is all over the place, and life conquering death is the storyline of Scripture. 
It's unfolded over thousands of years, and it culminated when a supernatural miracle took place and Jesus rose from the dead, literally and physically rose from death to life. It's the story of Scripture, and it's also the evidence of the eyewitness testimony, which, again, Paul lays out here. Paul lists those who saw the resurrected Jesus personally themselves. He talks about Peter. Peter, who had, after Jesus went to the cross, he just, he took off. He was gone, right? And the other disciples, they all took off. They were gone, and he even mentions 500 people at one time. And he says, hey, just to clarify, most of them are still alive. Some of them have passed away, but most of them are are still alive. The invitation is that they're they're around. You can find them, you can go to them, and they can verify it for you. And then he says, he appeared to James. James James was the half-brother of Jesus, and if you read through the Gospels, you find out that he wasn't a big fan of Jesus for a long time. I think he's the one who called him out of his mind, right? But something changed. Something shifted. Then it says he appeared to the apostles. And what's amazing is, of course, we don't have their testimony. We can't go to them and ask them, hey, is it real? But what we do have is the testimony of their lives, the record of history that confirms this. And I find the, the apostles' lives to be one of the strongest enduring evidences for the, for the reality of the resurrection because something switched. Previously, they were cowards. You read it all through the Gospels. They are, they're running away. They're, they're abandoning Jesus. They're, they're getting everything wrong in every way. But something turned them from cowards into some of the most courageous people in history. And when we read through the church history and read about how almost all of them died, almost all of them died because they were martyred. They died for the sake of this testimony that they refused to recant that Jesus was alive. I think they said Peter was, was crucified upside down because he, ref- he didn't feel himself worthy Uh, to be crucified the same way as his Savior. And can't you just imagine, like, if this wasn't true, if this was just a fabrication, if this is just, you know, we're just making up a legend that by the time you, like, nail the second nail through the hand into the cross going upside down, just kidding. You know, wasn't that a funny joke? No, let's give it up. I want to go on and live out my life in ease and comfort but he didn't do that. None of them did that. And you got to ask yourself, why? And one thing history will tell us is that no one has ever been willing to die for something that they knew to be a lie. So is it possible that they were just out of their minds and they kind of just had some kind of delusion? I guess it is. It's possible. Is it probable? I don't think so. I don't think we see anything about that. Um, So we have the scriptures, we have the the testimony, and then there's one final piece of evidence that Paul lays out for them, and it's his own life. 
He points to himself. He wasn't there when Jesus was crucified. Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. And one thing we know about Paul is that Paul had a past. We all have a past. We've done some things, right? But, but Paul had a past that was probably a little more checkered than your past or my past, right? He, he personally persecuted the church of God. So his life mission was to kill Christians, to exterminate the church. And he was actually doing a pretty good job of it until he had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ on the, on the road to Damascus. And then from that point forward, everything changed, right? He, he talks about the amazing grace of God and how meeting Jesus changed him from who he was to who he now is. And the thing is that Jesus and meeting him was a, was a game changer. It changed him from the church's greatest opponent to its greatest advocate. See, the resurrected Jesus changed Paul's life. And I don't have to tell you, he's not the only one, right? Didn't just stop with him. He is still doing that work of changing lives. And, you know, I can't tell you that I've had that kind of dramatic encounter the way Paul did. I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the expectation. What happened to him was unique. But what it illustrates is God's power to change people's lives, because Jesus is alive, and that continues today. It takes place today. There's people around this room who could testify to the same thing. The risen Jesus changed my life. And he says, that's, that's the message we preach. That's the message you believed. And he's just urged them, guys, don't let go of this one. It matters too much. So let me, let me close and I ask you, what, do, do you believe? Uh, have, have you taken that step of faith? Have you trusted in what Jesus did on the cross for you? If you've heard the gospel, there is a response that connects this whole thing and gets the whole thing started. When Jesus rose to life, he rose to bring us new life. And with that new life is grace enough to change whatever it is in your life that needs to change, whatever it is that you say right now, this is the way it's going to be and nothing's going to change that because the, the reality is, is Jesus is alive and um, it's worth noting what the greatest, I believe the greatest obstacle to believing um, and it was something that we heard on Friday night at the, uh, at the retreat, the speaker who goes to college campuses, secular college campuses, and, and, and invites people to uh, ask him questions and just, you know, gives evidences for Christianity. And, and he, he says, um, you know, and he's just an open forum. There's open mics and people ask different questions, and he answers them. And he said one of the questions he asks is, if I can, if I can show you that Jesus rose from the dead and I can give you enough evidence, he says, then would you believe? And he says, what's shocking is that how many people answer say, no. See, it's not the lack of evidence oftentimes that keeps us from trusting in Jesus. The evidence is there, but the biggest challenge is the issue of the heart. 
it goes back to the, the same thing that we already talked about as the essence of sin, which is independence. We just do not want to go God's way. We don't want God to be in charge. We want ourselves to be in charge. We want to go our way. We want to live these autonomous lives. And so that's the biggest challenge. That's the biggest challenge. And maybe it's the challenge that you're wrestling with this morning. If, if this is new for you, if you never have had a starting point, you just can't say, I, I don't know if my spiritual life has begun. It's about responding to the Lord Jesus Christ who came and died for your sins, who was dead and buried and three days later rose again to conquer life, conquer death, and bring you new life. When you respond to that and you receive it, that starts the journey. And so, uh, so I want to just invite you this morning, if you haven't done that, to do that with just a, a simple prayer of faith. Lord, I, I trust in you, in what you did on the cross for me. I receive that. I, I, I want your grace, your gospel, to be the hope that I'm standing in and to start something brand new in my life. Let's pray.